Good to see you all this wonderful Wednesday evening. And just for those uh, who'd like to read ahead for Sunday morning, we'll be back in Acts chapter 24. We'll finish the chapter off looking at 14 through 27. And as we have often said, it's amazing how God will take us through with all the breaks and stopping and starting of, of the various books and praise night and looking at our word for the year, how God parallels on Wednesday what we're looking at on Sunday and vice versa. And that will be the case again tonight. So here we go. You ready? Open your Bibles to Second Samuel chapter 8. Second Samuel chapter 8. Now, I have to say, when I first read through this chapter, one word came to mind. And the word was help. This is a, I thought about introducing our time as this is a very Old Testament-esque chapter, but I thought that'd be too obvious. Of course, it's in the Old Testament. But it's one of those chapters that Bible critics like to use to question our God, to draw a distinction between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the, of the New. And there is but one God, and he is the God of both Testaments. Amen. And his son is a central figure of them both as well. And as we move toward our text, I'll remind you, since it's been a while, that last time we addressed a topic from Second Samuel 7 that nobody wants to talk about. <coughs> Excuse me. No one wants to hear about, and certainly nobody wants to hear a sermon on it. And our topic and title was, When God Says No. Now, you're probably thinking, why would you recap that? Well, because it's true. Sometimes God says no. Amen? And remember when David had addressed the fact that it just seemed inappropriate to him, that here he is living in a house that is a paneled cedar from the famed cedars of Lebanon. Hiram, the king of Tyre, had sent workers and craftsmen and builders to build a house for David. And yet, here is the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God on earth, the very ark that was carried about throughout the wilderness wanderings and beyond. And yet here it dwells in a tent made of ramskins behind a curtain. And David saw this as obviously inconsistent and unacceptable to him. And therefore he said he needed to build a house for it. And Nathan the prophet said, the Lord is with you, go for it, in paraphrase, or Do all that is in your heart. Well, the Lord came to visit Nathan at night and said, well, that's not exactly what I want David to do. And his answer to David building him a house was, starts with N, no. Now, in 1 Samuel 7, 8 through 11, we're told, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. I'm sorry, that's 2 Samuel. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be a ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously." Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Now, the Lord just didn't say, no, David, no thanks. I don't want you building a house for me. 
as we'll find out uh, later in the record of the events surrounding the building of the tabernacle, that David was a man of bloodshed and the Lord wanted a man of peace to build a house for him. But the Lord didn't just say no and not give him any further hope or help. He first told Nathan to remind David of all the things that the Lord had done for him, of all the things that the Lord had done through him, and how he had made David's name great in all the earth, like the other great men of the earth. Now, our takeaway is a point of application was, when God says no, we need to remember all of his yeses. For God has said plenty of yeses to us, amen? Like, Lord, forgive my sin. He said, through Jesus, the answer is yes. He said yes to our going to heaven, as we talked about last time. He says yes to our prayers that he would use us for his glory. He says yes to our request to be more like Jesus. And yet he says no to the devil's accusations against us, to Satan's efforts to steal, kill, and destroy us. And God also says sometimes wait to our petitions, and other times he just says no. Now we also made the parallel points, and when God says no, it's always the right answer. Amen? When God says no, it's always the right answer. Here's why. When God says no, he's still God. Now, when God says no, our minds will often run to the place of, well, he must be punishing us when it's most likely that he's actually protecting us. Whether that's from disappointment or failure or getting into the flesh or even protecting us from harm, every no is the right answer because God is God and we are not. Now, our text tonight is interesting on a couple of fronts. It's interesting that we are paralleling what we're studying in the book of Acts, as I mentioned a moment ago. But it's also interesting in that it follows what we read in the opening of chapter 7, where 2 Samuel 7, 1 told us, It came to pass when the king, David, was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him what? Rest from all his enemies. Now, why this is interesting is because of chapter 8. It's interesting because what we have in front of us is 18 verses of war. And there is no peace and there is no rest recorded in our chapter. Now, that means one of two things. Either first, 2 Samuel 7, 1 was predictive or prophetic in that sense. And the Lord was foretelling of what was going to come to pass. Or it could simply be the employment of a common Hebrew literary device about speaking of something in the future with the assurance that it would come to pass because of the one who spoke it. Because if God promised it, it's going to happen. And this is not an unusual practice. Here's a familiar example. Remembering Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was wounded for our transgressions. Jesus hadn't even been born yet, and yet it's presented as a fact in the past tense. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now, this hadn't happened yet, but there was nothing that could stop it. It was going to take place, no matter what the enemy threw at the nation of Israel, trying to kill the young children, the male child that would be born, who had bruised the serpent's head. Therefore, it could be spoken of in the past tense because it was going to come to pass because the Lord had stated it. Now, for our purposes tonight, we need to highlight the chronology of what's in front of us as far as what the Lord promised. And it's going to be highlighted through our title, which we've all heard, which we've all, or are all, I should say, familiar with. 
And our title is simply, you ready for this? War and Peace. Our title is War and Peace. Now, that's not an indication of the length of this message. So relax for those of you who have read the book by Tolstoy or uh, seen it uh, on the shelf taking up the space of two books. Now, it does remind us of a reality that there are times where war is the only path to peace. Now, stay tuned. In our case, the war we're referring to is the same one we spoke of on Sunday, the war of the spiritual realm. The spiritual war that is raging all around us, even though the example before us is a physical war that led to peace for David. And sometimes that peace that passes understanding comes after we wage war on our spiritual enemies, after we bring them under submission, after we fight the good fight of faith, so to speak. And in 1 Peter 2.11, Peter writes, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which what? War against the soul. We are at war. Amen? We are at war against principalities and powers and spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And we're going to learn three things from David's physical warfare that will aid us in engaging in spiritual warfare simply by way of reminder as well as by application. Things that are warring against our soul. And the first of the three things we'll find tonight is found in our opening two verses. So would you stand, read with me please, from 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. We'll take the middle section in a big bite and then finish uh, with the third section in 15 to 18. But let's start with 1 and 2, 2 Samuel chapter 8. After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methag Amah from the hand of the Philistines. Then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death, and with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. You may be seated. Now we're going to get more of the same as we go. So as I said, it's a Very, very heavy chapter. It's a chapter of war. It's a chapter of death. It's a chapter of battles. But it's also a chapter of victory. Now, our text speaks for itself, and it's a bit of an uh, investigation into the people and places named that we could find maybe a little bit of insight, but there's really not for uh, much for us to glean at first glance. However, as is true with all of Scripture, There are some wonderful truths hidden in plain sight, if you will, if we'll take a closer look for them. And as I said, we'll find our usual three as we make our way through this chapter of war that brings about the promised peace from 7 verse 1. Now, we have said in the past that peace is not the absence of problems. You can have problems and have peace at the same time. Amen? However, in the context of our verses, peace is the absence of war, and that is what is being spoken of. And at times we have spiritual battles that leave us feeling unsettled. And it's only when we come to the end of them that we recapture, if you will, that peace that guards our heart and mind through Christ Jesus. And there are things that happen in life, struggles that happen in life, difficulties that happen in life that are very unsettling. And we find a great truth in our opening two verses. And the first thing we need to point out that is informational is that Metheg uh, Amah is not a city. It's actually a name. Well, it is a city, but it's not the name of a city. It means mother city. 
And it's the mother city of the Philistines, which was Gath. And we know this in part, at least from 1 Chronicles 18, 1 and 2, which is a parallel record of 2 Samuel 8, where basically it, it verbatim quotes what we have before us, that it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines, subdued them, and took Gath and its towns from the hand of the uh, Philistines. Then he defeated Moab, and the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. Now the balance of First Chronicles 18 parallels exactly the events of our chapter. So we know we have two records of the same event, and therefore it verifies that the mother city of the Philistines was indeed Gath. Now, we need to remember David had some history in Gath. He had duped Achish into believing that he had defected from Israel and became a supporter of the Philistines and even lied to Achish and told him he had been raiding areas and fighting against his own countrymen. And now here he goes back and fights against the very city that housed him and the king that had been duped by him earlier in his life. Now that had to be a bitter pill, obviously, for the Philistines to swallow. But the fact is, all of this happened because of Saul's treatment of David. And it was indeed the division within his own family that drove him there. After all, he was the son-in-law to the king and the same king who sought his own demise, that of David's, that is. Now next we see the mention of Moab, where David destroys Moab or defeats Moab, bringing them down to the ground. He pounded them into submission, if you will. Now in Deuteronomy 2.9, the Lord said to Moses, do not harass who? Moab, nor contend with them in battle. For I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given R to the descendants of Lot as a possession. Now remember, Moab was a descendant of Lot through the birth of children through Lot and his own daughters. Now, Joshua 24.9 also reminds us about Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against who? Israel. And sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. Now the Lord gave Moses instructions to leave Moab alone, yet later in Israel's history, Moab wouldn't leave Israel alone. And in Judges, we read that they sided with Edom and would not allow the Israelites to pass safely through their land, but made them go around the borders of their own country. And thus, they became Israel's enemy. So there was some history with Moab and Israel, yet even recent history as it relates to David's time and life. In 1 Samuel 22, 3 and 4, we're reminded that David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. He was in hiding from Saul. Again, remember, he ran for years from Saul. Well, the king of Moab hated Saul, and thus he gave refuge to David's father and mother, and they dwelt in the land under the protection of the king of Moab as David continued his efforts to evade Saul. Now, we also need to remember that there was a family connection with David and Moab from the beautiful love story of Ruth and Boaz, in the book after her own name. In 4.13 to 17 of Ruth, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. 
And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has born him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her bosom, and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is born to Naomi, and they called, there is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ruth the Moabitess was the grandmother to David, as Boaz was his grandfather. And David measures off the people of Moab and assigns two-thirds of them to be killed. And the other third become his servants, and they paid him an annual tribute, a tax, if you will. Now, in light of recent events, we don't know why David made this decision. We don't know why, because he had family uh, amongst the Moabites, and they had even protected his own father and mother. The king of Moab allowed them to dwell under his protection. We don't know why this happened. So there is indeed a lesson for us to draw from this in light of the proximity of those who were causing Saul, uh, David problems, that being his own father-in-law Saul, and also the relationship with the Moabites. This gives us something to glean from verses 1 and 2 that we need to recognize in our times of spiritual warfare. And that is, and it's a bit of a lengthy one, but I think you'll get it. Listen, some of our greatest spiritual warfare comes from places you wouldn't expect. Some of our greatest spiritual warfare comes from places you wouldn't expect. Now, I think we're all quite aware that the devil hates us. Yeah? He only wants to steal, kill, and destroy us. Is that still true today? Is he still roaming the earth like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may what? Devour. He's a well-recognized adversary, and it's not any news to any of us. And it's no surprise that there is warfare in our lives that comes from him. Now, but the other side of that is sometimes the warfare comes from people who share the same last name. Or maybe they share the same DNA. Sometimes it comes from, like it did with David, our own, from our own countrymen. Now, I think most people realize and have, and have experienced the reality that the closer that someone is to us, the greater the surprise and the pain when the attacks come from their direction. And that's why Jesus would say in Matthew 10, 34 to 36, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own what? Household. This is exactly what happened with David. And it happens yet today as well. Now understand, Jesus is saying, my very presence in the life of a believer is going to cause division. It's going to cause animosity in families. It's going to cause people to mock one another. It's going to break up and even break down families at times and set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and there will be enemies within one's own household. Now, knowing this in advance doesn't lessen the pain when it happens. Knowing that this is going to be a reality for us doesn't change how painful it is or surprising it is 
when it comes our way. I shared with you not too long ago, and I couldn't help but think of it uh, in light of what we're talking about now, about that guy I worked with years ago that I think it was 1968. He went to the Billy Graham crusade in Los Angeles, went down on the field, gave his life to Jesus Christ, declared that he wanted to be born again, came home and told his mother that he went down on the field, accepted Jesus as his savior. And she said, I can't believe how stupid you are. And she laughed in his face. And this is a boy, 12 or 13 years old. And he never went back to church after that. How painful are these types of things when we encounter them? And the truth is, even in our own country, in our rich Christian heritage, most of our country is turning away from what our country was founded upon and against their Christian countrymen. And we are being slowly ostracized for our belief in the word of God as written. And yet, it is a long and well-established fact that some of our greatest spiritual warfare comes from places that we would not expect. Or we might even say, Sometimes it comes from places where we would actually expect to receive the most support. Does anybody know what I'm talking about tonight? Yeah, I think we've all had that experience. Well, you ready for a couple of tongue twisters? All right, let's look at some of these names that we're going to encounter and continue on our way. We'll look at 3 through 14. The first guy's name is Haddad Izer. I'll give you a little tip. and You're on your own on the rest. Now, David also defeated Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rahab, the son of Zobah. And he went to recover his territory from the river Euphrates. Now, David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. Now, when the Syrians of Damascus came to help... Come on now, step out in faith. Hadadizer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadizar and brought them to Jerusalem. Also from Beta and from Barotai and from Hadadizer, King David took large amounts of bronze. Now, here's an easy one. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the army of Hadad-Ezer, Ezer, excuse me, then Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadad-Ezer. How many times are you going to put that in there? <laughs> and defeated him for Hadad-Ezer had been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, articles of bronze. King David also dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated from all the nations from which he had subdued, from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, and from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadizer, the son of Rahab, the son of Zobah. And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. Somebody say, (laughs) Now, David is expanding his kingdom, as the Lord had given him 
a promise that he would be ruler over all of Israel. We know it started as a divided kingdom, but here David is using his military prowess and the blessings of God to conquer the local enemies and take the land that had been apportioned to them. Now, one of the things to recognize is that Israel possessed the greatest amount of geography under the reign of David than they have in all of their history, including today. Now, twice we are told that the Lord preserved David wherever he went. But we also note that within the Lord's preservation of David, there was also guidance. And when Hadadizer went to reclaim territory that he had lost in battle, David took advantage of the army being outside the protection of the city and defeated both Hadadizer and the Syrians who came to his aid. And the Syrians became as the Moabites and they were servants of David and paid him tribute. Now, on hearing this news, the Syrian king of Hamath Toy sent Joram his son as a peace envoy with gifts of gold, silver, and bronze as an offering to David. Now that reminds us of Proverbs 16, 7, which says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, putting that or inserting that into our message tonight reminds us that this is not to the exclusion of war. And sometimes peace is obtained in the manner that we see recorded in our chapter. But the truth is, when a person's ways please the Lord, there is a peace that can come, even if it comes as a result of a spiritual battle. Now, we also need to note that there are beautiful pictures or types of David pointing forward in time to the one who will actually bring the elusive world peace that the world is so longing and searching for. And it will be the Prince of Peace who brings it about when he rules the world and uh, in judgment and justice, and the world will bring tribute or offerings to him as he reigns in righteousness from David's throne for a thousand years in Jerusalem. Now in Luke 1, 26 to 33, we're reminded of this when the in the sixth month of her pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph. That was the pregnancy of Elizabeth, that is, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered, What kind of greeting is this? Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be Boy, is that an understatement. He will be great and he will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Remember, father means ancestor in this context. And he will reign over the house of Jacob for how long? Forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now, in this context, David is actually a type of Christ in this very dark chapter. In that he enjoys a peace that comes through the means of war. And he enforces the peace that he brings with judgment and justice, as we'll read in our last section, which is exactly what Jesus is going to do when he returns. Now we know that he is coming again, by the way, if I didn't bring that up tonight. 
Now, in Revelation 19, 11 to 16, John said, I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like the flame of fire, symbolic of righteous judgment. And on his head were many crowns, symbolic of absolute authority. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in what? Blood. And his name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Verse 8 of the same chapter says the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Followed him on white horses. So this is the church returning with Jesus. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. That represents what? The word of God. That with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Somebody say something tonight. Amen. Now, while David may be credited with the most amount of territory under his reign of any king of Israel, that record is only going to stand until the King of Kings comes and rules the whole earth. And the means by which he is going to bring that peace is through war. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. And that's the only way this peace is going to come to this earth. Now, all of that has nothing to do with our next point. But it needed to be said because it's true. Jesus is coming. And the war he's going to bring is going to make peace or bring peace. Now, our point comes from what David does with the spoils of war, the silver, the gold, the bronze sent to him by toy, the silver and gold he accumulated through his conquests of Syria, Moab, Ammon, Amalek, and the Philistines. All of these things he dedicated to the Lord. Now, in Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 17, we get a little hint concerning why he hamstrung most of the horses and only kept a hundred. Because Deuteronomy says, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But he shall not multiply what? Horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he multiply silver and gold for who? For himself. Well, David did not multiply horses for himself. And he did dedicate the silver, gold, and bronze to the Lord. He didn't do so good in the not multiplying wives department. And while two for three might be a good batting average, it's not when you're considering obeying God. We need to do all that the Lord commands us to do. Amen? Now, here's our point. When peace comes through the avenue of spiritual warfare, even practical warfare like we see with David who uh, prefigures Jesus. Listen, here's a reminder tonight. Every victory is caused to give God glory. Every victory is caused to give God glory. Now, the reason for David's victory was not his skill as a military man, though he had that. It wasn't his wisdom as a strategist, though he had that too. 
And it wasn't his army's loyalty to himself and their nation, though he had that as well. The reason that David was victorious and made a name for himself was because the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And therefore, Isaiah 42, 8 reminds us where the Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name and my glory. I will not give to another nor my praise to idols or carved images. In Judges 7, 2, in the story of Gideon, when God whittled down the army, the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. And when Jesus said in John 15, 5, that without him we can do nothing, that wasn't hyperbole, that was fact. Without him we can do nothing, so when we do anything, who receives the glory? When we have victory, who receives the glory? When we win a spiritual battle, who deserves the glory? Obviously the Lord. And therefore Deuteronomy 8.18 reminds us, And you shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Now listen, no matter the accomplishment, no matter the achievement, no matter what the form of victory, God deserves the glory because it, because it is he who made us and not we ourselves. Amen? Now, let's wrap it up with 15 through 18. And the names are a little bit easier here because we pronounced most of them some time ago. And David reigned over all Israel and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. And Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Sariah was the scribe. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were what? Chief ministers. Now, Again, the pictures of our future in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ are clear here. David sits on the throne over all of Israel and his family are his chief ministers. And that's what's going to happen during the millennial reign of Christ on earth. And someday Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David. And he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And the sons and daughters of God will rule and reign with him as his chief ministers. Now... The Bible gives us clear indication about what our future looks like. In 1 Corinthians 6, 3, Paul, when he was dealing with the church at Corinth, dragging each other into court, saying, why do you need a carnal judge to settle a spiritual matter between you? Ought you not uh, be able to judge between yourselves? And then he says this, don't you know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? And then Revelation 26 adds this, Blessed and holy is he who has a part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God in Christ and, and of Christ, and they shall do what? Reign with him for a thousand years. Revelation 22, 1 to 5. John says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its streets and on either side of the river was a tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing or the sustaining of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. Amen to that. 
But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face. His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They have no need of a lamp, nor the light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall what? Rain for how long? Forever and ever. Listen, we have a serious upgrade awaiting us. And it's not going to be temporary. It is going to be eternal. Now, what our verses give us, our closing verses, that is, is basically David's cabinet, the leaders that he had assigned in his country. Joab was the secretary of defense. Jehoshaphat was the chief of state, a high tube and a Himalek were the heads of David's faith council, so to speak. Sariah was the attorney general and Benaiah and Jehoiada were the head of the CIA and the secret service. Now, the Cherethites and Pelethites were from Crete. They weren't Israeli. They were David's personal guard and escorts. Now, the reason David made this decision is because it eliminated, all but eliminated, and greatly diminished the possibility of intertribal rivalries, causing someone to say, somebody from our tribe needs to sit on that throne, and therefore they'd put David in their sights, and anyone who was close enough to him would be someone who would have no such motivations to organize a coup. Yet... In the end, we also see that David's sons were his chief ministers. Now, here's what we can glean from our last verses. And again, we're pulling application out of this from a very practical and real scenario that applies to our lives today, even though we're not to go out and kill Syrians and all that sort of thing. Somebody say amen to that. Now, here's what we can glean. Listen, every Christian, say every Christian. Every Christian is called into God's service. Every Christian is called into God's service. Now remember back in 1 Samuel 30 when the Amalekites burned Ziklag to the ground and carried off the wives and children of David and his men. (coughs) There was talk of killing David. And yet in 1 Samuel... (coughs) In 1 Samuel... 30, uh, 9 through 10, David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and they went to recover all that had been taken, and they came to the brook Besor, and where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued, he and 400 men, for 200 stayed behind who were so weary that they could not cross the brook Besor. Now, those who stayed behind didn't simply sit around and do nothing. They guarded the gear, and the gear, had it been taken with the whole group, would have slowed down the speed of the 400 men should they have to carry their own supplies. Now, we also know that when the 400 men, having recovered all that had been taken by the Amalekites, not one thing was lost. Every man's wife and goods was recovered. And when they returned, 1 Samuel tells us that some wicked and worthless men didn't want those who guarded the equipment to share in the victory and certainly not to spoil. And in response to these worthless and wicked men, David said in 1 Samuel 30, 23 to 25, My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us. He gave glory to God for the victory, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies 
they shall share alike. And so it was from that day forward, he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Now, (coughs) excuse me, again, I think many times as we engage in the war for souls and await the return of the Prince of Peace, we use the world's measures to determine or assign value to actions or involvement, even within God's army here on earth. I think sometimes our mind says the more visible is the more valuable to God's kingdom, and that's exactly what the world would think. But the truth is, the unseen prayer warrior, the unseen financial provider, the unseen servant in the children's ministry or parking lot, or even as I learned in the Philippines, somebody who carries your briefcase or your coat for you, are all of equal value in God's economy, because if the glory is all his, no task or assignment is any greater than the other. And who can take credit for their own actions? Who can take credit for what God has done through them? Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. So what do we have to boast about? Not a thing. It's all him, right? And the one who does the work deserves the glory. Doesn't that make sense? So who does the work through us? God does the work. So who deserves the glory? Does the task matter? No, not at all. If you park cars for the glory of God and he receives glory for it, you're doing what God has called you to do. Doesn't matter whether you stand up here or sit out there. If you're serving God in the manner that he has called you and you are giving him glory, that's exactly what he deserves. And the task or assignment is not any greater one than the other. And we know that there are varying degrees of rewards in heaven. But listen, they're not related to what each person was assigned to do. They're related to our faithfulness to do it. As a matter of fact, the teacher receives a stricter judgment. That's why James would say, let not many of you become teachers, for there is a stricter judgment for the teacher than for the rest of the body of Christ. Listen, it's been well said that God is not looking at our abilities. He's looking at and for our willingness. And that's why Nehemiah reminds us in 4.13 to 14, where Nehemiah said, therefore, I position men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for who? Your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Nehemiah was wise enough to know nobody's going to fight for family like family. We're family. The church is family. And we may have our distinctions and differences. And of course, we are always to be guarded and expose works of darkness that creep into the church. And they've been doing that since the birth of the church. Gnosticism and other errant teachings rose up right away. And that's not what we're talking about. But what we're talking about is operating as family and fighting together against the forces of darkness for the sake of rescuing souls drawn towards death. We are family and we are at war. And we shouldn't be at war with each other. We should share the common enemy. And the enemy has but one enemy, and it's the church. The whole church. We are the body of Christ. Amen? We are God's building. We are God's church. We are at war with the enemy. 
And the devil would like nothing more than for us to forget those things. And he certainly doesn't want us to remember that the Lord will preserve us wherever we go. You see, War and Peace is not just a book by Tolstoy. It's actually a chronology. This is what is going to happen in the end. It's what's been happening all along in the spiritual realm and in David's time and beyond. It happened in the practical realm as well. And listen, the more the devil can get us to fight against each other, the less time we spend fighting against him. And that is his goal. Now, we all have jobs to do for God's kingdom. And we all have the same motivation, God's glory. And Satan loves nothing more than to distract or discourage us by bringing attacks from unexpected places, from places where we should be receiving the most encouragement and support, even at times from family. And all that we do is for God's glory and not our own. So let's not measure the importance of what we do by the standards used by the world. What man may not see, God sees. In Matthew 6, 3 to 6, Jesus said, say Jesus said, When you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Obviously, that's a figure of speech for doing it in secret. That your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will will himself reward you how? Openly. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets. that they, they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door and pray to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees you in secret will reward you. How? Openly. Openly. He goes on in six sixteen to 18. It says, moreover. When you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, take a bath or a shower, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place or is hidden from view, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you how? Openly. Now, in light of what we've talked about tonight, it seems to me like the Lord rewards those who guard the equipment, unseen by others, away from the main battlefront, so to speak. And he rewards those who recover what was lost in battle the same way he rewards those who were actually engaged in it in the physical realm, as we gave our example. Now, the conclusion is simple. Whatever we do in word or deed, Let it all be done for the glory of the Lord. Uh, That's worth more than that. Whatever we do in word and deed, let it all be done for the glory of the Lord. Amen. Amen. And someday the wars are going to end. And someday there'll be a time of peace which has no end. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And Father, we are grateful this evening. For this chapter, Lord, as difficult as it is to make our way through, and Lord, the death and violence that we see that, Lord, we know was a part of David's day, and it was also a protection for the people, and it's a part of life in a fallen world. But Lord, we also recognize that spiritual warfare is true for all who believe. 
So help us, Lord, to fight the good fight of faith. And help us, God, (coughs) especially not to use the world's measurement to place value on what is done for your namesake and glory. And Lord, if you ask us to guard the equipment, or if we're weary to the point that that's all that we can do, Lord, may we do it as unto you, that you can receive glory through it. And Lord, when the times come for us to be numbered among the 400, may we do that with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that you might receive glory through that as well. But Lord, I pray especially that we would heed your words and encouragement to show the world that we're your disciples by the love we display for one another. And Lord, help us to remember who our real enemy is. Even as we stand fast, even as we stand against errant teachings and uh, heretical movements, Lord, may we as the body of Christ do all to stand in these last days. And let us be a support to one another when the pains that we encounter come from unexpected places, even people of our same name. May we recognize you foretold these things in advance. That because of you, there would be enemies within our own household or within close proximity or even sharing the same DNA. So, Lord, help us to take these examples of what we've learned of how to fight the good fight of faith, how to engage in the spiritual battle and fight through to that time of peace. We thank you, Lord, for the things that we have gleaned this night. We pray your blessings now as we go. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. This is a pretty good book, this Bible thing. Amen? We are very fortunate to have such a map through life that doesn't mince words or cover up man's failures or the darkness of humanity. And it just reminds us that God has told us all things that we need to know. He's given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And therefore, we don't need to fall apart when those pains come. Uh, We can stand fast, uh, knowing that there is coming a day where there's no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, for all the things that cause those things will have passed away. Don't you look forward to that? It's a true reality that awaits us. And in the meantime, it can be a mean time. But we need to stand and we need to do all that we do for the glory of God, no matter the assignment. Listen, I was just thinking... uh, as we were wrapping up, I've told many of you this before, but my first official job in ministry was setting up chairs. And that was my first official assignment when I got involved in a high school ministry at the church I was a part of. And I'll never forget the first night there were 26 kids that showed up for the high school ministry, and I'd set up like 40 chairs. Next week, I set up 50 chairs, and there was... 40-some-odd kids. The next week it was 60. And then it was 100. And then it was like, I can't do this anymore. There's too many chairs to set up. But for me, it was such an honor to do something that I knew would cause someone to be able to hear the gospel of Christ. And it really doesn't matter what the task is. It matters our heart. It matters our passion for God's glory. So whatever the task, let's do it for his glory. Amen? Because without him, we can do nothing. But through him, we can do all things. Amen? Would you all stand?